Welcome back to Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion. Today's episode features a guest we all know and love, Ken Pasternak. Ken was a lifer at the Academy and his involvement in so many aspects of our high school, including swimming, music, student leadership, meant he knew many of us very well. We credit Ken for doing so much to keep our class connected. He never forgets a birthday on Facebook and ensures we all come back for reunions. This was a really heartfelt conversation with Ken about his life after the Academy has really felt like three distinct lives and he shares his story with humility and vulnerability. Best of all, he showed up in full Halloween spirit, dressed appropriately as a unicorn. Ken is a unicorn in our eyes, a little magical and definitely one of a kind. You will love this conversation with Ken. We learned so much about him. Listen and enjoy. San Francisco, how was your wild weekend? Oh, hi, Carla. Um, My weekend was good. San Francisco was beautiful. The weather could not have been more perfect. Wasn't it amazing? had amazing food. I had the best pizza I've ever had in my entire life. What was that? Where was that? Tony's something or another. I don't know. There's like three pages of pizza menu like all the different kinds. And one thing that was really cool is on the menu, it tells you what temperature they bake that pie. So coal fired pies are baked at 1050 degrees, but Neapolitan pies are built or fired at 525 degrees. Anyway, it was delicious. The party was great. It was at the battery club. Who was was hosting it? It's the Battery Club. I guess it's a social club in San Francisco that friends of ours belong to, and they do a Halloween party. And so there were, I don't know, I mean, hundreds of people there. Um, And uh, some people kind of went with the themes that were suggested, but most people did not. (laughs) So it was pretty random. And there there were some younger hipster types. And there were some people who I swear were in their 80s. That's awesome. Killing it on the dance floor. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, this is amazing. And let that be me. (laughs) I'm here for it. I aspire to it. Yeah. It was it was fun. It was fun. And we we stayed right now, right downtown near near the battery club and just walked to and from the hotel. And we came back to Healdsburg the next day. And now I'm Relaxing in my friend's beautiful garden casita. I know. It's such a pretty place. That's awesome. Well, I'm wearing my Halloween costume today. I I brought my horns. So so that's a costume for you. (laughs) (laughs) You little devil. I know. Um, It is Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy officially Halloween to you. (laughs) Are people in the family dressing up? Uh, yes, I think Piper is going with friends as Mary Kiss or Kiss or Kill or Kill Mary, Kill Mary Kiss or Kiss Mary Kill or something like that. And so one of them is Kiss, 
One of them is Mary, one is kill. I don't really understand it exactly. There's got but. to be a popular cultural reference here that I'm missing. Probably. I just, you know, whatever. They look very cute. Um, anyhow, <laughs> we have a special ha- Halloween guest today, don't we? We do. The very <laughs> spooky Ken Pasternak. <laughs> well, no, definitely not spooky, but... Um, no, not at all. But I would say... 100% a special guest because Ken has been so deeply involved in our class over the years. And <laughs> he's put a tremendous amount of time and effort into keeping us connected and reminding us when all of our birthdays, you know, when all the class birthdays are. And um, it's been, it's been really impactful. All yeah. of his, all of his efforts. Yeah. So it's kind of special that we get to talk with him on a holiday. That's right. <laughs> and you've seen Ken relatively recently because you live in the same part of the of the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, he lives up in San Francisco. I just had lunch with him pretty recently. Um, I've kept in touch with him over the years and been able to, you know, see him maybe once, if not twice a year for the most part. We try to... Usually if someone comes into town, he's really good at organizing some kind of lunch and we all try to get together. Um, But I just, it's so fun because Ken was one of the first people I met at the Academy because we were in the same section together. And um, another AF. Another AF. What are you doing to, there's definitely preferential treatment here for AF. AF has been overrepresented for sure. Okay, well, we'll try to make sure we we are a little bit, we'll spread out a little bit, try to take some of the other eighth grade this section. This is a challenge to our listeners. Yes. If you've noticed <laughs> that no one from your eighth grade section has been interviewed yet, it's time <laughs> to push them into it or to step up yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. And, you know, so, I mean, Ken is just an, is a, is a class icon for sure, right? I mean, he's someone who was involved in so many things at school and was a real uh, leader in so many ways and such a great student, right? I mean, he was mm-hmm. such top of the, top of the class. And um, so it's always fun. I to, he must have been because he went to Harvard. Well, here he comes. And we here he ask. comes. We can ask. <laughs> joining us i love it definitely gonna snap a screenshot of this for (laughs) sure we are not missing out on this no we are not this is going right on the page (laughs) (laughs) i wish i had some costume to throw on right now because y'all are inspiring me i'm looking around the room like what could i do i could throw a sheet over my head that's (laughs) so good to see you ken Good to see you too. Thank you so much for joining for us. This. I'm so glad to <laughs> be here. How's your Halloween been so far? Uh, you know, like a regular work day. <laughs> you know, you wake up, you throw on the pink unicorn suit, and you go to work. <laughs> That's the way you do it. Yeah, um, it's it's been fine. It's actually uh, I I had some potentially really challenging things happening today, and all of them went great. So I'm feeling That's pretty great. Good. I love that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, hopefully this will not be the most challenging part of the day either. <laughs> no, you know, I've been looking forward to yeah. this quite a bit because you guys, uh, thank you. You are doing such an amazing oh. job. And I've listened to every single one of these and they're so great. They are so great. But the two of you, I mean, first of all, just the idea of doing this is fantastic. But then the way you're doing it is really, really inspiring. You really, everybody's opening up, everybody's telling their stories. And uh, I can't tell you, I mean, I think everybody's really grateful for the ability to listen to these, but I know it's no easy task. So thanks so much. Well, it's been really inspiring for me as well. I feel like um, being able to reconnect with people who I knew way back when and seeing how their journeys have yeah. unfolded in ways that I would not have expected, or in some ways where I, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But it just helps, mm -hmm. I think, to give us, give me perspective mm -hmm. over all the ups and downs of life and what really matters is friendships yeah. and health. And um, yeah, it's been wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for playing along. Yeah, there's, there's a new book out right now. Um, I just ordered it for my whole team. You might have seen it in the New York Times, but David Brooks has a new book out called How to Know a Person. And it's the art of seeing others deeply and, and, and being seen. And I just love the concept of being an illuminator, um, the idea of illuminating other people's stories and, and just trying to see them a little bit better. And, you know, it's funny, you walk around side by side in parallel, all different people all the time. And in many ways, we've been all leading our parallel lives, right? Um, sometimes intersecting, but it's just so fun to be able to give everyone a little bit of time to illuminate who they are for just a little bit, you know? So mm -hmm. well, you, you all are doing it. You're doing a great job. Ken, we're so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being a listener and a, and a participant today. And we always start with the same question, which is, what have you been doing for the last 35 years? Great question. Um, and uh, I, I've loved hearing the answers from my classmates. And um, what's interesting is, you know, when I get a letter from the Academy or from Harvard or something saying, can we believe it's been 35 years? I'm always like, yes, yes, I can. I can. Because it's been a long and winding road. Um, and... I feel like I've lived several lives um, since since leaving the academy, um, and I'm grateful for every one of them. Um, so you know, it's been a, it's been a full 35 years. I mean, uh, left Albuquerque uh, and went off to Harvard. One of three academy students in my class at Harvard, one of four total New Mexicans at Harvard. Oh wow! Year. Um, yeah, and 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 the fourth was right across the hall from me in my dorm, which is super cool. It was friend. Carol Trujillo, no? Uh, it is Carol. So, you know, Carol yeah. and I were really good friends at Sandia Prep. Oh, mm -hmm. at Sandia Prep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love Carol. I just saw her in June. Um, she's so she's cool. wonderful. She's a great friend. And um, we had that to bond over, but then we, you know, life experiences too. Um, but, uh, you know, those four years were, were really great. Um, I loved Boston totally connected with the music scene and the restaurant scene and being out in a big city and uh, found so many opportunities on campus that really welcomed me in 
Um, and I wouldn't say I was an academic standout, but I, I don't think I was really a standout in any way, shape or form because at Harvard, there's so many people who are just, you know, above and beyond. But it was good because I kind of just accepted that and said, OK, I may never be the best at anything ever again if I ever was, but I'm just going to be I'm just going to do the things that I find interesting and, and, and to the extent that I have the time and the, you know, the energy to do it. And I still did. So I did a lot. Um, I got involved in a lot of things. Um, made some great friends there. Um, the, the summer before my junior year in Harvard, I went to, um, I, I took a, uh, the summer in Hungary. And this was right after the Berlin Wall had come down and Budapest was becoming this sort of, you know, Western city again. And uh, my family, my father's family is Hungarian. He, he and his family came over as refugees in 1956. So I had this family connection and I'd been when I was like six, but I didn't really remember much. Um, but that was like a door open to another mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. for me. I recognized so much in the culture and in the people and things that I had kind of been mysterious to me growing up. And I'm all like, oh, well, that's where all that yeah. stuff came from. And so I made the decision that I had to get back there at some point. Um, so graduated Harvard, actually spent three months doing an internship in uh, rural Kentucky in the mountains. Uh, at, a, at a mountain school teaching wilderness education and cultural history and things like that. It was something that I had kind of fallen into. But right after that, I just kind of showed up in Budapest. Um, and if, if this, this little incident is perfect encapsulation of what it was like to live in Hungary at the time, I had told this friend of my dad that I was coming to visit and he was going to put me up for a few days. And I came in to the train station because I'd been on a trip with my parents and my sisters over Christmas and I landed in Paris. I got on the train and took the train to Budapest and I'm waiting for him at the train station and he's waiting for me at the airport. <laughs> and that was just like, you know, things like that all the time in Eastern Europe, just kind of figuring it out, messing up, trying again. The easiest things to do in the United States were the hardest things to do in Hungary, like make a phone well, I was going to say, you didn't have a cell phone at the time. You couldn't just say, hey, no, let me oh text no. you on WhatsApp or anything. Like, I couldn't even get a landline in my apartment. There was like a six-month wait oh, for a phone. Gosh. Wow. I had, a, I had an upstairs neighbor who I shared a phone line with. So half the time, I'd pick up the receiver and it'd be silent because they'd be using it. And they would show up and put these notes on my door with this really cryptic messages that I didn't understand. And they were asking me to pay them for the phone bill. <laughs> But months went by before I figured this out. And by the time I showed up, they were like, where the hell have you been? <laughs> I don't know. I'm new at this. So uh, living in Hungary, I moved there just totally without any plan. Um, I ended up getting a job teaching English in a, in a public high school. I got a job writing for one of the English language newspapers. Ended up starting a company um, producing film and video, uh, which is what I was really interested in. Um, for multinational corporations that didn't have Western creative resources and uh, did that for three years, met my future wife there. Um, and uh, smart or not, I decided to do the same thing again. And we both showed up in San Francisco completely unannounced with no plan and about a couple thousand bucks in our pockets saying, we'll figure it out. Um and we did. We, uh, you know, we we found ourselves an apartment. Uh, I started doing just kind of odd jobs here. I thought I was going to be a filmmaker. I was making independent films, making no money at all. Uh, Aniko was working under the table at a at a cafe, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, slowly but surely, I sort of figured it out. I met a guy uh, off this very nascent sort of Harvard network, 
who was running a, the office of a, of a, of a uh, brand strategy agency that was based in New York. I had no idea what brand strategy even was, but he thought my, my, my story of like, you know, leaving and going to Europe and then coming back and not doing the traditional like consulting or banking or law school route that a lot of Harvard grads do, he found it interesting and he wanted to bring me in. And uh, so I ended up working with this guy for 23 years. Wow. Um, he was my mentor. He was uh, kind of a father figure, not that I don't have a great relationship with my dad, but he just was that person to me. And uh, his story is incredible. Um, where he came from, what he went through, what he became, uh, was it, it reads like uh, watching Forrest Gump. You know, he just fell into this thing, that thing, the next thing. And I fell into this job with him. And, um, you know, we ran, we ran the San Francisco office of this New York agency for five years. We sold that agency. We started our own thing. Um, we ran that for 18 years. Um, and, uh, my most recent life started five years ago, really. Um, and one of the big triggers for that was, uh, telling my mentor that I was not going to buy the business mm -hmm. from him. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was hard. Yeah. That was a really, really hard thing for me. I'm a very loyal person. I, I'm somebody who takes a lot of responsibility. I'm a nine on the Enneagram, <laughs> if you're familiar with that at all. Um, and it was really probably one of the hardest things I ever had to do, but it was the thing I had to do. Um, and to his credit, he accepted that and we figured it out and we sold the business. Yeah. And so I, that's how I ended up where I am now, which is on the San Francisco office of a Chicago based ad agency. It's called two by four. Uh, he retired. He's since passed away. Um, and, uh, that's where I am now. So a lot of twists and turns, personal twists and turns. My marriage ended around the same time that I ended my business relationship. Uh, it was a kind of a similar thing. My wife very courageously came to me. So while I was sort of stuck in my career, she was feeling stuck in our relationship. And, and we did our best to work it out. It took about a year and realized both came to the conclusion that it was better off to, to part ways as friends, which we've done. Uh, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the first step she took, and I'm grateful for the process that we both took. Uh, now I'm in a new relationship, uh, new place, new relationship, new company. I mean, everything is new. My relationship with my family is new. Everything is new. Wow. So 35 years later, it's it's good. It's great. I have a lot of gratitude. So looking back at the first choice to just make the leap to Hungary, and then the second choice... Yeah with Aniko to make the leap to San Francisco. Where mm -hmm. do you feel like the courage to do that sort of thing came from? Well, I appreciate you interpreting it as courage. <laughs> I didn't, I don't think I saw it that way. Uh, I know I, 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 I am not a planner. Hmm. I will give you that. Like my, my longest term plans are usually like six or eight months out. Okay. Um, now I've never had kids, so I, that's probably one reason I've been able to exist uh, without, you know, having a longer term plan for things. But, you know, I knew I planned to go to college, but it was that was pretty much what everybody was going to do. Post college, I had no plan. I mean, before that summer in Hungary, I had no idea. But then I was like, hey, I just got to go back. I have to, I have to continue to live that 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 existence, that life that I found so great. Um, so that move was. A no-brainer. I was like, I don't know what I'll do, but I'll figure it out. Um, it didn't feel like courage. It just felt like I'm going to do this. Um, coming back to the States, 
was a little bit, I mean, you know, the stakes were higher. Um, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, I was pretty financially independent from my parents, wanted to keep it that way. Uh, but it just felt like, you know, dot-com boom was happening. I'm like, something's going to mm -hmm. happen. So I appreciate, I guess it is, and actually, you know, at, at a point in my life about four years ago when I was kind of, I was doing a vision quest actually, and I was going through all these things and I was thinking about how absolutely terrified I was of what mm -hmm. was ahead of me. And I was thinking about all the times where I've just kind of leapt off a cliff face with no met and it's been mm -hmm. fine. And those moments showed up for me. And I thought to myself, this is not the first time I'm facing a new big change. And so it's always worked out. I might as well just go with it. So that one did feel like courage. This last time really did mm -hmm. feel like courage. Um, but the last few, no, I just, I think it was lack of planning and just interest in a lot of things and belief in possibility. And I guess maybe willingness mm -hmm. to step mm -hmm. into the unknown. And maybe also openness to whatever the path ends up being. I think so. I think so. I'm I'm a very open person. I'm really, I'm, I've, you know, I have a growth mm -hmm. mindset and uh, that's served me really, really well. That's so cool. When you were making that choice to not buy your partners, not buy the company, mm -hmm. what were what were you using internally to make that decision? What were the signs for you that you shouldn't do it? I mean, here's someone yeah. you've been with for 18 years or longer at that point, 20 some years. You're like, you know, this company, it's what you do, but and yet something internally, yeah. And internally yeah. you knew something wasn't, you didn't want to keep doing that, but what, what did that feel like? Or what were the signs that were, that were telling you, no, don't do this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it was, um, it was a lot of things. I think I was kind of resentful that he was running the business and he was making a big, paying himself a big salary and doing less and less year over year. I was really more and more responsible for the success of the business every year. And so I was feeling the pressure and I was feeling just the weight of this partner on me that was making me pretty resentful. I also, you know, I felt very self-conscious that we had, we were a successful business by many, many measures, except unless, you know, you look at like what Wall Street looks for, which is growth, right? We had not really grown it year over year. We'd, we'd, we'd grown it a little bit, but we hadn't like doubled in size every year, as people always mm -hmm. like to talk about, you know, and tech companies mm -hmm. are just, you know, accelerating. And one guy who was sort of evaluating our business called it a lifestyle business. And it really was that. It was so that Philip, my partner, could maintain a, a good lifestyle, that he could mm -hmm. remain interested and interesting, that he could, you know, be out doing what he cared about. Um, and there's, there's really nothing wrong with that. But I was in a different place in my life. You know, I'm 30 years younger than he is. I'm ambitious. I want to do something. I want to make my mark. I want to be significant. And it was hurting my ego, to be honest. And I just didn't think I could handle, you know, doing it that way forever. And I felt like paying him a bunch of money just to do what I was already doing didn't make any sense mm -hmm. to me at all. I'm like, wait a minute, you want me to keep running this company, essentially, bringing in the revenue, doing the work and 
owing a big chunk of money to you every year. I just don't mm-hmm. see it. Mm-hmm. So it, unfortunately, a lot of my feelings were very negative about it. But, you know, what I've come to realize is that, you know, when I have an opportunity to come to me, if, if I don't feel 100% really excited and enthusiastic about it, then it's not the right opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I was definitely feeling the opposite there. So it was the right decision. It just was a really, really hard decision because of all that loyalty and responsibility I mentioned earlier. Yeah. It's hard to leave something when you've been invested in it for so long. It is. It is. And, you know, I'm very proud of what we built. Um, Looking back at it, learned so much from, I still conjure him almost daily (laughs) and uh, very grateful for that. Um, And, uh, you know, the client list we built and the work that we did, it's really you know, when you get into another place that does some, some things slightly differently and has a different profile, you, you really appreciate what you did accomplish. So I, I appreciate being able to do that. You mentioned about being having a growth mindset, which I think is just such a yeah. great gift. I mean, I like to say I do, but there are definitely days where I, my mindset's much more fixed, I'm sure, about what I can and can't do or whatever. Um, but I'm sort of curious. It sounds like you have seen yourself as sort of evolving, right? Because that's what a growth mindset is. How, how, have you, how have you changed over the years? I think I've become more aware uh, and more present to myself, my surroundings, uh, who I am mm-hmm. as a person. And I mean, it's been all the things that have helped me do that. Um, there was definitely a long period there where I was not very self-aware. Um, and it turns out I was pretty self-obsessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was causing a lot of swirl and a lot of turmoil and a lot of unhappiness, just not just me, but, you know, other people around Mm -hmm. me. And, you know, I've always, I've always, I guess I'm, I I grew up and I'm probably still largely, uh, kind of an approval Mm -hmm. junkie. I I really draw a lot of my energy from the approval and acceptance of others outside me. I'm also Mm -hmm. an extrovert and, uh, came to that discovery during COVID. (laughs) Um, yeah. And, you know, looking back, I always have been, and I've always uh, uh, behaved in that way, but I just didn't recognize it. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. Um, so, you know, it's just different events in your life that call attention to it and different things that you realize where you get stuck or you feel you're in crisis. I was in crisis in 2018. This is really the biggest moment. I was seeing a guy who was supposed to be sort of a business coach for me. He's a little bit more of a, uh, industrial psychologist and then he was really thinking about you know my well-being and my mental state in the business and he's like you know it i I, what i see you doing here is you're staring at this brick wall and you're probably three inches from this brick wall and you're trying to figure out how do you get over this brick wall and you don't see any way to do it but if you were to step back six feet you'd realize that wall is only two feet wide Mm -hmm. and you could just walk Mm -hmm. around it and he's like, you just need to zoom out. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that he had uh, a friend who had co-founded this, this place that builds itself as a midlife wisdom school. It's called the Modern Elder Academy. Mm-hmm. It's down in Baja. It's also in Santa Fe now. They just opened a campus. Sounds very Santa Fe. Fe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really kind of a movement. You know, the, the, the premise is everybody's going to go through midlife. Everybody's going to ha- everybody's life is getting mm-hmm. longer. And there are no rites of passage for us beyond graduation, maybe marriage, having your kids or whatever it is. There's nothing to mark the passage of time or maturity as we get older. And yet 
we're only halfway through our adult lives, mm -hmm. if that. And so they founded this school just to say, we have a lot in us. We have a lot to offer as people, as productive people, not just career oriented, but just, you know, how do we want to share the wisdom that we've gained in all these years? How do we become both mentors and interns in the life that we live and in the work that we do? So I went to this program. I somehow accidentally signed up for a two-week program. Scared the <laughs> shit out of me. Like all day, every day for two weeks? I was in Baja, residential program wow. for two weeks. And I met, I, I ended up in a 10-person in a cohort, eight women and two men, who are now my brothers and sisters and who the whole program really just helped me open up. I, I remember I came, there was this, this booklet that we got, or this binder that we got. And the first page in this binder was this sort of hand-drawn message that said something like, you know, people talk about finding themselves, but you are not change in a pocket of pants, right? You're not lost. You're just inside there underneath all the crust that society puts on you, whatever, something like that. And I remember sitting there reading that and going, there's no way I'm going to find myself. There's mm -hmm. just no way. I don't see it happening. And lo and behold, out I came. And just, you know, that's where I actually learned about the growth mindset and realized that in, in my best years and my best days, I've had one. And I, and, I, and I learned how to cultivate that. So it was an incredible program. Um, I still meet with my cohort once a month. I'm good friends with many of them. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it was a, it was a, 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 one of those, another one of those happenstance moments just kind of show, presented itself to me. And I'm so glad I took advantage of it. Cause that was the time when I was stuck in my career, stuck in my marriage, stuck in a relationship with my mom that wasn't mm -hmm. working at all, you know, having these things happen and no idea what to do about them other than run really fast in the other direction, which isn't mm -hmm. an answer. Um, it just helped me come to clarity on so many of these things. So that's where my growth mindset really at least my awareness of it came out. Was there any, I mean, you can't distill a program that was that intense down to a couple of things, but I'm curious if there was anything that you particularly read or anyone you learned from during that program that really stands out to you. I mean, obviously Carol Dweck is the, is the person behind growth mindset, but. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a, it was a high variety and, and this particular program was designed by this woman named Vanda Marlowe, who, um, was the coach slash muse for the whole thing. And this was her, this was her realizing a vision that she'd had for many years and they've only done the program mm -hmm. twice. Uh, they did, they piloted it, they did mine and they've never done it again because it's not oh, really economically, right. yeah. they do one week programs now. Um, but, um, they just, they brought in so many different disciplines. I mean, there was poetry, there was meditation, there was, you know, sitting in circle. Um, there was uh, improv, uh, some doing some improv. There was um, soul motion. One of our, one of our attendees was a soul motion coach and she took us through that process. Another one of our attendees is a shamanistic practitioner and she mm -hmm. took us through a cacao ceremony. Um, so it was a, it's incredibly eclectic and there was coursework, you know, there was uh, the, the book that um, the founder of the organization had written called Wisdom at Work was kind of the main mm -hmm. coursework. Mm -hmm. His name's Chip Conley. Um, and, uh, and I can send you all this stuff. I'd be happy to. Um, there we did. This is where I learned about the Enneagram. This is where I learned about, you know, different types of personalities. I'd never done a Briggs, Myers-Briggs yeah. test myself. So all of these things were oh, just yeah. tools for us to pull mm -hmm. from. And then we were just together 
you know, and everybody came to it with the, their full selves. And I can't even tell you, like the very first moment, they had a shaman open us up and open the ceremony. And, and in the first three words, this guy had said, I was, I was feeling flashes of insight and I had just tears streaming down my face. It was just the most amazing experience for me. You were definitely at a state of readiness, ready to yeah. Like, I, was, I was in a total state of readiness. And, you know, I'm grateful for that too. It was not easy. No, absolutely. Man. But, you know, thank God it happened before 2020. Mm, yeah. Thank God, by the way, I sold my company before mm -hmm. 2020 because that wouldn't mm -hmm. have happened either. Um, all these things just feel like blessings from mm. the universe that um, managed to come my way. So yeah. I've been thinking off and on about that idea that in our culture, we don't have um, milestone celebrations um, other than sometimes, you know, people do like a big 80th birthday thing or, you know, 50th birthday. Right. But in terms of what that means as a season of your life, we don't really have cultural um, celebrations yeah. of that. And I was talking with a friend of mine who, um, was born in India, but lives here now. Her father is still in India and um, she had gone back and they do have a kind of elder uh, celebration and they look at life as four eras. So you start as a student and then family and then, or they call it household, student, household, service which could be what you're contributing professionally, but it could also be what you're doing in the community. And then the last chapter is contemplation. <laughs> hmm. um, and I thought that was so cool because people yeah. struggle when they retire. What am I doing now? Who am I now? You know? Hmm. Um, and there's been kind of a proliferation of books, I think in the last couple of years about midlife. Um, Arthur yeah. Brooks's From yeah. Strength to Strength has a similar um, message mm -hmm. in it, but um, but it was really cool. And I totally relate to this yeah. idea of kind of being an approval junkie. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. worked for me for decades until it didn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, it's so liberating to mm -hmm. not oh, yeah. be as attached to that. And of course, I'm I'm still a people pleaser. I'm a two on the Enneagram, but, um, but I'm a lot more picky about who I care to please than I used to be. And I think that's a lot healthier. I think that's, mm -hmm. that's a, that's a, that's a great, yeah, for me, that's a sign of maturity, um, and growth. Uh, you know, I, I was in a situation where it's like, I am trying my darndest to make everybody around me happy. And, Nobody is, first of all. And second of all, I'm the least happy of all because I've just given everything out. There's nothing left mm -hmm. inside. Um, and what, you know, my work now actually um, is to still figure out what it is that I need and mm -hmm. I want because I've forgotten or if I ever knew because I'm so focused on what everybody else mm -hmm. needs and wants. Um, and, uh, you know, I have some clues. I, I, there are things that I really enjoy that I, that I return to that I think are, are part of that. But, um, you know, it's, it's a funny thing when somebody asks me, what do you want? What do you want to do? That's a tough question for me sometimes. It's hard when there's so many options. It's a hard question. Crazy. <laughs> well, there's that too. There's always so many options. I want to do everything. I've always wanted to do yeah. everything. 
Would you mind saying more about the way that the changes you've made personally have affected your family relationships? Hmm. Yeah, um, I'd be happy to do that. Um, you know, uh, my family is pretty high achieving. Um, both my parents are both still active, very uh, involved in life still and healthy, thank goodness, and um, still together. And my sisters are all, you know, off in different parts of the world doing great work. Um, so I, I was raised in sort of that sort of, you know, um, high achieving mindset, which also has a kind of a pathological, pathological dissatisfaction associated with it. You're never satisfied with yourself or with anything mm-hmm. else. And um, I got to a point, especially in my relationship with my mom, where I was just like, I just don't know what to do to please this woman. Um, and I know that she loves me and I love her, but the relationship that I wanted from her was not happening. And the relationship she wanted from me mm. was not happening. And I had to come to her during this time, I think it was 2018, 2019. And I said, listen, mom, this is not working. Neither of us is going to have the relationship we want from each other. We have to just accept that and love the relationship we have. And, uh, Amazingly, it, I got through to her, and amazingly, she accepted that. And there's been some bumps along the way, big bumps, um, but uh, it's really changed just, you know, my my general happiness. And you know, there's another thing, which is uh, Megan, who's my partner, who I met just over two years ago, and my relationship with my family's a hundred percent better because of Megan. Mm. And I mean, that says a lot to me too about her and her support for me. She's got my back like nobody's ever had my back mm-hmm. before. Um, and it feels wonderful. So it's almost like the pieces are all in place. Yeah. And what's interesting about her approach, which I'm just listening to all of us who are a little bit on the people pleasing side, it was really interesting because yeah. it sounds like that's not where her, she wasn't organized around, I don't think, pleasing people, right? She was organized around, um, I don't know, harmony of some sort, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's, she's the kind of person that people just really love when they meet her. She's just really full of energy and positive and, and, and inquisitive. And she asks great questions and she involves you. She's a host. She's a two. And um, she didn't really get to exercise that the first time around with my mom. And it's the things just didn't start mm-hmm. off real well. Um, but at the end of the day, I just said to myself, it doesn't matter because this relationship's more important to me than whatever my mom thinks. And, and, and to my mom's credit, she came around too. And she's, you know, really loves Megan and loves us together and sees that we're happy. And so my family is, is in my, from where I sit, it's closer than it's been in a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm not pushing, pushing things away or, you know, trying to just manufacture harmony it's it's happening on its own yeah sometimes it's really hard to have candid conversations about family dynamics when for years Mm -hmm. everyone's been operating as though this is working for everybody you know again that takes a lot of courage Mm -hmm. that that did that that did i i will definitely accept that one yeah and if you're the courageous person to surface those dynamics that's awesome. And other people might not be ready for that yet. You know, there's, we talked a little bit about the readiness factor and if they haven't been thinking about it, it may just feel like it's coming out of nowhere, right? You've been thinking about it all this time and they're just maybe not really even 
conscious of it because it's like a fish swimming in water. That's all you know. Your family is like so interesting. And sometimes you don't even think about how unique it is until you get married into another family and it's like radically different. You're like, wait, mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you mean that you that you eat cranberry sauce that comes out of a can at Thanksgiving? Like, that's just like a metaphor for me of my relationship with Mark in many ways. We seem like we came from very similar families, but in reality, like Does there was some- mean, Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> what I mean? Cranberry sauce out of the can? Well, until he met me, he had never had fresh cranberry sauce. But, you know, that's like the small things, but they magnify it. But that's just like, you know, yeah. that's that's a symbol of like things that are so different that you have to then negotiate. Mm-hmm. But just in general, your family unit just feels sometimes like it's an impermeable membrane uh, <laughs> of everything. That's the way things are done. Those That's the way families work. That's the way it is, Right. Then you walk out or you walk back in and suddenly you're like, it doesn't have to be this way. <laughs> Cause I've seen other models. <laughs> so how did you and Megan meet? Well, I'm glad you asked Jessica, cause we met the same way you and I am. I'm, I'm, I'm Bumble. <laughs> this podcast I'm brought Bumble. to you by. Seriously. <laughs> sure. You know, um, I was, you know, I had dated for 26 years. And um, I wasn't about to just jump right into it. I was, I was kind of, you know, lived a little bit on my own for a while. I went on kind of a walkabout in 2020. We sold our house and I, I rented a Jeep and drove to New Mexico and Colorado and skied everywhere I could and lived out of Airbnbs and did my work from wherever I was. And that was really, really uh, great. I, I, I just think back to that as such a great time um, because it just gave me time and space to just be me and not worry about all the things. But along the way on that trip, there were a couple of moments where I met somebody and there was a little spark and I thought, gosh, that's fun. I really enjoyed that. Uh, I want to do more of that. And so I was like, well, the best way to do it, especially during pandemic is to get online. And so I chose Bumble. I, I got some help from my, my soul sisters from MEA to help me with my profile. And <laughs> I uh, got out there and I started dating and it was really, I really enjoyed it. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't something that I, that I was like really tentative about or worrisome about it. Just, I was open to meeting people and not really knowing mm-hmm. where it might go. Um, and I had a couple of short-term relationships, one of which, you know, I got dumped and it didn't feel real good. And uh, I was thinking, well, maybe I'll just take a little break. So this woman with all this enthusiasm just leapt off the screen shows up and I'm like, all right, one more swipe, <laughs> right? Super swiped her. And, uh, which puts me at the top of the list. And, uh, meanwhile, Megan is just taking a new job and she's like, I don't really have time for this dating thing right now. I'm going to turn this, this app off for a while. And the screen came up and said, are you sure you want to pause? And the yes and no buttons were reversed. And so she hit the no button and my super swipe popped up. So it was like Whoa. last minute, oh, last that's minute great. effort for both of us. And it's like a, you know, meet cute. In yeah. The and, like uh, that movie. Was, <laughs> yeah. It was pretty awesome. And, uh, you know, I don't think we knew right away that this was something special, but we knew pretty fast. Yeah. That's so great for you. I like her. I got a Thank chance you. to meet her and she's lovely. Yes, you did. That's awesome. awesome. I hope to bring Hopefully her to the reunion the if she's willing. I'd love to meet her. I'm planning That's on awesome. it. Yeah. 
well, what, what's going, what's, what are you thinking about for the future? What's up? What's next for you? What is happening that is exciting for you when you think ahead? Uh, I'm thinking about another one of those big changes. I think it's going to be something really different. I've been in, the, I, I, you know, as a brand strategy for a while, which was more of a consultative business, uh, a really organizational psychology in many ways. And I really, really enjoyed that. And I've become really, really good at that. Advertising is a different animal. Um, it's volatile. Mm-hmm. It's it's fast. It's high pressure. So I think I want to do something really different, um, but I don't know what that is. And I don't have the space in my brain to think about it. So I want to make that space. That's awesome. Uh, that's my plan. My, that's my that's my six months out plan. So well, that's as far as know. you go out. So we wouldn't ask that's any right. more of you. <laughs> that's right. We'd hate to ask you to think about the next ten years. <laughs> It'd be a blank. It'd be blank. <laughs> and in the meantime, I would also just love to hear a little bit more about what are the what are the get to do things for you on a day to day basis. What are you enjoying? What are you passionate about? Thank you. Um, you know. Um, Kind of as always, I'm interested in a lot of things, um, but a, a couple of things stand out. I, I really uh, feel like just being out there and moving my body around is important to me. So running has been a big thing. Pickleball over the last two years, I think, or so. And I, that has nothing to do with age. I mean, you're seeing younger people playing pickleball all the time now. It's really fun. It was so easy to pick up. We've got different partners all over the city who invite us to different th- times. And so we're doing a lot of that. Um, uh uh, so there, and there's outdoor hiking and stuff like that. So the physical needs, and of course, skiing is still very big for me. I try to get as much as I can in. Some years is huge, and some years is like two days. But I, I'd really try. Um, music is still really important to me. Um, for a number of years, I was singing in different choral groups here in San Francisco. Um, that was my final instrument. I played the trumpet. I played the piano. I played guitar, harmonica. I played a lot of instruments, but my final was the voice. I started singing in college. I joined an acapella group. I got to tour the world with them. It was fantastic. Um, and uh, so I, I started doing that in San Francisco. And I sang with the, the symphony chorus and I sang with the San Francisco Bach Choir and uh, COVID kind of stopped that and I haven't gotten back into it. And so music is something I would love to, beyond going to performances, is I'd love to get back into. Uh, so I'd say those are the two, this, just being out in physical, ex- exercising, doing music. Um, and then, you know, I do the, like Carla, I do the crossword every day. Um, I really love word so games impressed. and word play. It's just mind liberating, um, you know, stuff like that. The wordle every day. I just did my 367th crossword puzzle in a row. I got through a year and then I'm like, I'm retiring, but it happened on a Sunday. So I, the Monday and Tuesday are so easy. <laughs> But yeah, Sunday I hit 365 straight days. Wow. The perfect. Yeah. <laughs> wow. There were some nights, like like Thursday nights, where I like had saved it to the end and I'm tired and I can't really do that. And I had, you know, it was just like, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. Please <laughs> let something just show up in my brain. <laughs> You know, there's a little hack. If you start it the night before, you can finish it. Oh, she knows. That's what I do. That's what I do because I'm best in the morning, but it's nice to have gotten a few things in. And then I just, it's like the Queen's Gambit. I look up and I see the pieces. (laughs) The pieces? (laughs) 
I mean, it's amazing how much better you get at it when you do it so often, you know, the times start dropping and ideas just start flowing and yeah, it's fun. (laughs) I do the Thursday one most weeks and then I really like the other games. I like Sling B, I like Connections, the Wordle, of course. Um, (laughs) I could make a commitment to do the puzzle 365 days in a row. I think about all the books I could have read instead, and I sometimes feel a little guilty. <laughs> I could be so much smarter. <laughs> I don't have the attention span to finish a book. I, I, I listen yeah, to a lot of do. audiobooks, but, but seriously, my attention span does not allow me to finish a book still. I talk about presence and all that stuff, but I have a lot of practice before I can actually mm. read a book. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, um, I would love to hear your reflections on yourself in high school and then we'll go back and do our flash round we'll go back and do our flash round what was what was ken like in ken's mind in 1985 to 1989 yeah um it's difficult with all the years that have come since but i think what i would say about the way i saw myself was i was into everything i really wanted to i was interested in so many things and i kind of wanted to do mm-hmm. everything I didn't realize that you can't, it's difficult to do that, to, to really be, because each thing that you do has a community Mm. and I wanted to be part of every community. Again, that's sort of the extrovert in me. I wanted to be connected to everyone and I'll never forget. This is really a a, a wonderful thing that comes back to me. I was, it was eighth grade, I think eighth or ninth grade. And there was some party at the end of the year that everybody was at. And there was, you know, at the parents' house and parents are home. It was a totally kid safe party. And I'm bopping around and hanging out with this person and that person and this group and that group and whatever and doing my the thing that I do. And Sam McClay came up to me. He's like, Ken, you're such a loner, dude. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you're just always by yourself. Hmm. I was like, huh. I thought I was just with everybody. But in being with everybody, I was actually just kind of like not really with hmm. anybody. Um and that's a big kind of story of my life in high school. I was doing all the things. And yet, and, and some of them I did really well. I mean, I did really well in swimming, you know, uh, did a lot of music and was very successful there. Um, but, you know, I didn't have, and I, and, you know, I heard uh, Chris Eisbach talking about this recently, where he also kind of deliberately wanted to just cross fertilize and mm-hmm. it's okay. But I didn't realize that by doing that, I wasn't really discovering a single passion. I wasn't really investing myself in any one person or group or, or thing. And um, as a result, I was kind of this kind of everything for everyone mm-hmm. person. And there's nothing wrong with that. But um, I feel like the way I described it recently, I think we had lunch with uh, Laura Cade Sowers and Chris Travis and some folks when we were in Chicago recently. And they're like, so what were you like? And how do you think of yourself now in high school? I was like, I was driven and directionless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's okay too mm-hmm. but it's just that's what i feel like i i was and i have been for a lot of my life just really driven but not necessarily knowing what that destination was or what mm-hmm. that commitment was um and i guess i'm blessed in that i had capability to do a lot of things at once you know at harvard i was still doing music and performance and swimming and you know all the stuff mm-hmm. for a while till i realized that i couldn't do all the things i wanted to do so i left swimming and i was fine mm-hmm. with that and i started to do the things i really cared about um, so there, there was a maturing process that kind of brought me out of that. So when Sam described you as a loner, I think of that as mm-hmm. going with being lonely. Did you feel lonely? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. no, you were just 
Oh, I didn't. So busy and doing lots of different no. things and extroverted, connecting with lots of different people. Extroverted, needing the approval and the energy from mm -hmm. from outside, kind of to feel good about myself. I mean, to be honest, um, you know, there were certainly groups that I really longed to be a part of, you know, and like while I could hang out with these people, I wasn't really in their mm -hmm. tribe, and I really wanted to be in their tribe, um, and I tried really, really hard. And, you know, that was probably not the best use of my time and energy, but I never felt lonely. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say I just felt socially ambitious and sometimes frustrated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but no, I'm also pretty good company for myself. So uh, never was lonely. Well, that's the um, gift of having so many interests. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Not all who wander are lost, you know, you don't have to always have yeah. the right direction. I didn't make that up. Uh -huh. That was Tolkien, right? No, I have that on a journal, actually. <laughs> yeah, so wise. So wise. <laughs> My crystallized intelligence. No, no, is that it? <laughs> All right, well, I think um, we should do our, our flash. Totally. Let's go back. Let's, Let's do go it. back. All oh. right, here we go. Let's do it. You want me to start this time? Uh, <laughs> as you wish. She All right. That's from the Princess Bride. But um, okay, you ready? You know the questions. I know you've listened to the podcast, so you probably have some, I I have some answers ready. So here you go. We're going to fire them at you. Who was your high school crush? <laughs> I, you know, I had a really active imagination and a romantic soul in, oh. in high school. I must have, because I had a lot of crushes. Um. Not quite as many as Susan, probably. <laughs> That's right. But, um, you know, my biggest crush, actually, bordering on obsession, was somebody outside the academy. It was my sister's best friend, um, and uh, that one that one lasted a long time, and 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 you know had me floored for a while. But at the academy, I would say, you know, what, what's interesting is that I acted on all my crushes. I asked these people out, or I, you know, I tried to, you know, manifest them. Um, eighth grade, probably Leanna. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, um, ninth grade, without a doubt, it was Stephanie Miles. And I, I mean, I must have asked her out like 20 times. <laughs> How did Mark Thompson feel about that? <laughs> he didn't care. Mark was so confident. He was like, it's fine. I know, I know what's going to happen, you know? Um, so I, that, you know, I, I, it's a little silly to think about it, but that's, and then sophomore year, actually, I went upper class. I was really, really, uh, uh, enamored with um, Stephanie Southard. I don't know if you remember her, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. but she was so great. She was really friendly and nice and, and, um, and, and, you know, would talk to me. And uh, so I would do my best to just be in her presence, you know, and, uh, um, and I felt really good about it, but it never really turned into anything. So those are the three that I can think of at the Academy that I really, really crushed on. Awesome. I love that you just kept taking shots at it. I'm just like, why not? Hey, what have you got to lose? Your answer might have changed since last week. Let me just check. Yeah. <laughs> okay, second question. Munch pudding or veal birds? Discuss. No doubt munch pudding. Vanilla munch pudding, oh. by the way. I really preferred vanilla mm -hmm. munch. It was the best. Veal birds tasted like sawdust. I never liked them. Mr. Riley used to talk about him in like sixth grade and he made them into all of his jokes were with veal birds. And I just I couldn't understand the fascination with these things. They were so dry and crumbly and 
No. Maybe it was a just the name was so intriguing that they made Maybe. people want to understand. It was like a little lump on a popsicle yeah. stick. Doused in ketchup. Did you ever see yeah, <laughs> Now, if you were to ask me about chicken patties, we'd be having yeah, a conversation. I was going to ask. That's my favorite. Yes. Oh, I love. The Did you like patties. it with the sauce or not? I I would cut them into little triangles like a pizza, and then I would yeah dip them in the <laughs> sauce. Oh, so good. Brilliant. Live Loyal Lagor. All right. Yeah, I'm with Brad. I'm with Brad. Our lunches were so great. Um, okay, what was your signature style or clothing brand? Did you have one? Hopelessness, maybe. <laughs> um, you know, I look at some pictures of myself in like ninth and tenth grade. And I'm like, oh my god. Yeah. My grandfather was a really stylish dude, and um, I learned nothing from him until I was out of college, probably. But um, finally, picked up a few things. But yeah, I thought about this too. Somebody mentioned Miller's Outpost. Like they probably did all of my shopping at Miller's Outpost. I wore a lot of Quicksilver and OP, but um, the one piece of style that I was proud to rep was Varney. Mm. I had Varney sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was very proud of those. That, that kind of fits the sporty. Yeah. And it was like such an 80s style, totally. a little oversized, you know? Totally. Yeah. I remember, I actually remember losing a pair of brown Varnays in the dining hall, speaking of combining the two answers. <laughs> what car did you drive in high school and how did it meet its demise? Yeah, I had a silver Mazda GLC four door. It was a little boxy thing. Great first car because it was, well, it certainly wasn't indestructible because. Um, it got rear-ended multiple times. Um, most of the time I wasn't even in the thing. I, um, there was one time we, there, Mark Thompson was having a party and, uh, Marilee Charles was driving Mike Feetz's oh, truck God. and she rammed into my car. It was parked outside and, you know, almost totaled my car. And, uh, I remember Brad coming in and go, Ken, Hey, Ken, don't get mad. I'm like, what, what's going on? I'm like, go outside and. Merrily and Mike are in tears and my car's and off, you know, in the shambles. I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to say to my parents? They don't even know I'm at this party. Um, but it worked out. We got it fixed. Everything worked out. Um, and I still drove that car for a few more years. And then I was parked actually outside of Chris Eisbach's house. I don't remember why I was going into his house. I was headed to like a Bon Jovi concert or something at Tingley, of course. And I'm parked outside of Chris's house. And when I come outside, there's a car that basically in my front seat, some woman had thought I was, I don't know what, at a stop sign or something. And she absolutely full speed rammed into my parked car and flattened it. Oh my gosh. And thank God I was not in the thing because that, I probably would have met my demise. Um, So that's how that car met its demise, unfortunately. Um, But luckily for me, I got my dad's 280Z, which was my senior year car, which made my life so much better. And I, I almost wrecked that sucker a few times, but man, it was fun. Such a great car. (laughs) That's crazy. I think I went to that Bon Jovi concert, by the way. Pretty sure. Oh, I, I think I saw them two or three times at Tingley. I, you know. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, actually that's a good lead in to the next question, which is what song or band would be on the soundtrack of your high school experience? 
I've been fighting this one in my head for a while, but because um, I listen to a lot, actually. Um, I used to ride to school and back from swim practice with David Somerville, oh, yeah. who I don't know if you knew him, but he was a couple of classes ahead of us and he was a real musician. I mean, he was an absolute virtuoso guitarist, saxophonist, and he listened to everything. So he turned me on to all kinds of cool music. Um, and I was listening from everything from psychedelia to um, new age and new wave to hard rock and hair metal. and. But I got to say, it's the hair metal that sticks with me and was really the thing. I mean, if I, the two songs I sang on stage were uh, Photographed by Def Leppard and You Shook Me All Night Long by ACDC. And I made the yearbook. That was the senior will. I was leaving to join ACDC. So I got to go with ACDC. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I still love them. They're great workout music. What really? high school? Yes, for sure. What high school teacher had the greatest influence on you? I think it was probably Mr. Smith. Yeah. Mr. Smith took the time to just really uh, help me in ways that I didn't think I needed help. Like when I would be in class, being social and talking while he was, you know, he'd throw me out of class, you know, and then he'd bring me back in. He'd talk to me about why it's really important that I pay attention to all the wisdom that he's putting out. And, uh, you know, he was, he, he had a character to him and he had a kind of a funness to him that was stern at the same time. And uh, he was my advisor later on. And I still, whenever he comes out to the Bay Area, I love seeing him. He just was one of those people who embodied the academy mm -hmm. to me. It was, it was, you know, really wise, but humanistic teaching, um, caring deeply about the subject and making it relatable to us. I wasn't a math, I wasn't really super great at math, but I made it all the way through AP calculus. Thanks partly to Mr. Smith and the way he would help us understand concepts. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, I chose to talk to him if I wanted to talk to a teacher and uh, I really appreciate is being with me. Actually, another uh, a follow on story to that. Um, a couple of years ago, I had, uh, because I was living in Hungary, I'd had a bunch of stuff stored at my parents' house. And uh, they were purging and they were getting rid of things and they're like, hey, do you want your yearbooks? And I'm like, yes, please send me all my yearbooks. So they put them in this flimsy wine box and they sent it to San Francisco. All I received was the address label. Oh, no. All my high school and college yearbooks gone into the ether. Who knows where oh, they are? No. So I was telling this story to Mr. Smith at one of the reunions when we were in Albuquerque. And the next day he showed up with a 1989 oh. yearbook for me. Oh, I still have, I'm looking at it right now. I don't, I don't have any signatures or any of that stuff in it, but I, I have our yearbook and it's a, such a wonderful gesture that, was sweet. that he made. That's amazing. Yeah, that's so cool. Oh, I appreciate that, man. Very, Your very description much. of him is so spot on because I remember being on the receiving end of 
you know, his telling me I had done something wrong, <laughs> been late to Spanish too many times or, you know, whatever. And the way that he would deliver that was simultaneously, it, I mean, there was a little bit of humor. There was a lot of, I, I really want to use the phrase unconditional love. It feels a little over the yeah. top, but a little humor, a lot of love and accountability. Like, yeah. this is where you are. Yeah. Okay. You know. 100%. Yeah. He has got, I think he got students, you know, he got kids. He did not think that they were little adults. Mm-hmm. I really do think he was like, these are people who are changing and evolving and they will. Their prefrontal <laughs> cortex get formed. I feel like we sometimes forget about that, especially with today's kids, because they they appear so mature and they just are so unformed. <laughs> and I think he knew that. Yep. That's really yeah. cool. All right. Did you have a favorite hangout spot either on or off the Academy campus? Uh, I'm trying to think about on campus because I, you know, I was like, I was doing everything. So I was in the pool, I was in the gym, I was in the music building, you know, um, I didn't have a lot of free time to just kind of sit around and hang out. I don't, I kind of remember sitting in the floor near the lockers, but never for very long. Um, off campus, it was a couple of places. Dion's obviously looking, waiting for something to happen. Um, actually in Four Hills, um, hung out at Kristen Heinrich's house a lot. And I know Carla, you did a couple of times. We had that yeah, mystery yeah. party yeah. one time and that was just a great place to be. And she was such yeah. a great friend and I miss her yeah. every day. Um, that was a special place. Cause I felt like if I had like a core group of friends, it was my Four Hills friends. It was like Kristen and Laura and a couple of folks from the you know Four Hills area that I just had seen when I was in second and third grade, as well as at the yeah. Academy. Those early childhood relationships and friends mm-hmm. were important. And Kristen's house was really inviting. Her mom was so lovely or is still so lovely and just a really warm person and always really welcoming. And her dad was very cool, an amazing artist himself, you know. You were just welcome to be there anytime. It was a really nice, uh, yeah, nice place. That's so great. What, if anything, is a regret you have from high school? I've thought about this one a lot, actually, and I think the way I would articulate it now is in my effort to ingratiate myself with so many people, uh, I compromised my values a number of times. I just kind of gave up on stuff that was important to me because I didn't think that it would get me where I wanted to be with these people. Um, And I can think of a few examples of that, you know, uh, one of which almost got 30 of us kicked out of the academy um, when we went on that ski trip and we had that big party. Um, I was the one who bought all the alcohol. Mm. And, you know, that's what kids do. They get fake IDs and stuff like that. But, you know, the important thing that I learned was it had to be me doing it. And that was just way against the values that I, you know, hold today. Um, So things like that, I would have preferred to have listened to my better angels and said, you know what, I'm going to just be me. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and that's something that I had to learn hard many times in my life many times. So it's a continuous process, but it's definitely something I'm glad to see and recognize. And it, you know, I wouldn't call it a regret because it's not like I wish I could go back and undo it, 
but I do think that that's something that just, I, I was not my best self. I was not, you know, Ken, I was Ken trying to be everybody else. I mean, the next question kind of ties to that, which is if you could go back in time and tell your, your high school self something, what would you tell them about either the future or just the advice you would give? Yeah, I guess the advice I would give myself in the moment was, you know, be yourself. You're pretty great. Um, but the advice I would give myself for the future is you don't have to be in such a hurry. Mm-hmm. You just Things are going to happen. Some are going to be great. Some are going to be not great. But you don't have to rush through it. And it's like Ferris Bueller, you know. <laughs> if you just stop and look around every once in a while, you'd see that life's yeah. pretty great. Um so that's that's my most important advice for myself as a younger person is just it's okay to slow mm-hmm. down. You don't have to have an agenda all the time. Uh, and it's, it sounds counter to my non-planning, but I always had kind of a running agenda in my head. And uh, that's something I've grown to let go of a little bit. Yep. Yeah. I, I so relate to this um, struggle to want to please other people. And some of that is, wanting to make life easier for other people, because that's where I feel like my sense of worthiness comes from. And some of it is just wanting to, you know, be in that group that's doing that thing at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, I think in some ways that's quintessential high school, but I think some of us are afflicted with it more than others. (laughs) It takes takes longer to figure it out. How lucky were we? How lucky were we that we were in a class where you really could kind of do that? You know, it wasn't super clicky. It wasn't super, you know, exclusive. Um, I've heard others talk about this. We really did feel like, you know, we're a small enough group and we and we're a tight, a super tight group. Even back then, that we, you know, I remember my my brother-in-law, who's English, uh, came back for one of our reunions, and um, he went on a Bear Canyon hike yeah. with us all, and he was just marveling at how close we were and how familiar we are. And he's like, I don't even know the names of like most of my high school mm-hmm. mates. Mm-hmm. You guys, how did you do this? And I think part of it is America. I think part of it's Albuquerque, the Southwest, the informality of it. But something, there's something very special. And I think a lot of people have agreed that there's something very, very special, the bond that we have. And I just feel really lucky. One of the reasons I spend so much time connecting and staying connected to all of you is just it's, it's you know, Bruce is like, if you could turn one thing into a job, what would it be? It would be that for me. <laughs> That's a great question to ask ourselves. Yeah. You know, I would just be question. connected with people. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. We're very fortunate. All right, last question. What would be the title of your high school memoir? Um, I'm going to steal this one. I think it would be Zelig. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with Zelig, but, you know, it's a Woody I Allen do. movie about this guy who just, like, becomes the people he's with, you know? And that's kind of how I operated for a lot of my my high school and even college years, mm-hmm. actually. It's just a kind of little Leonard Zelig walking around and becoming whatever it was that he was a part of mm-hmm. at that moment. And, um, you know, good to recognize it. There's some humor in it, some comedy in it. Um, and there's some good learning from it, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it makes me very happy to hear how much you feel yeah. like you can kind of almost rest in who you are instead of trying to hustle to prove that you're valuable in whatever situation you're in right now. So Brene Brown would be super proud of you. <laughs> Thanks, Brene. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I appreciate 
I appreciate the hustle. It's helped me tremendously in my career. Uh, so I've been able to use the hustle to, to succeed, but, um, I also, yeah, I, I really enjoy the resting in, in who I am. And, uh, just like the two of you, I mean, we've become some pretty great people. So, so true. And, uh, it's true. Such a pleasure to you reconnect. Know? Interesting. I deep. know. It's, it's always yeah. good to see you, Ken. It's always fun to see you. I really always enjoy our, our moments and thanks you so much for being here today. Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion is written, directed, and edited by Carla Silver and Jessica Slade. Our theme music, True Sight, is by Jared Matt Greenberg. Please subscribe and listen on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.